Welcome to Just Hit Record, where we talk about the life and lives of the ever-growing community of immigrants. Join us as we rant about what it's like to live the reality of the Western world through the eyes of your hosts, Pranay and Sandeep. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Just Hit Record. I'm your host Sandeep and I am joined by my friend and co-host Prane. Uh, Today's episode is slightly heavy. We'll be discussing the path to getting a job, what should you be ready for and what are the possible alternatives. So let's get started with, I guess, the most basic question. How tough is it to really get a job after you graduate? Prana, let's start with you. How hard or easy was it for you? You just graduated and backed a job? <laughs> was it that simple? I wish it was. I think the the one thing you we should remember is that as an immigrant, as someone on a student visa, we had three months basically to find a job. Uh because you're allowed uh, 90 days of unemployment. And that 90 days is, is almost like a grace period they give you to find the job. So knowing, knowing that I only had 90 days to actually find a job was not helpful because it, it, add, it did add a lot of pressure to the process. Uh, yeah. Having said that, I graduated around June. And by the end of July, I'd actually bagged my job my first job, there were a lot of rejects along the way, a lot of interviews that didn't work out. And um, we'll get into it in this episode, but sponsorship played a big part in that, uh, you know, not companies not being willing to sponsor a work visa yeah. was a was a deciding factor for a lot of companies. So it, it worked out for me within the three month period, but at the same time, it was, it was very stressful. How about for yourself? Um, well, for me, <laughs> it definitely didn't work out because uh, I didn't get a job. Uh, the one, one of the things that you can do once you graduate is that they give you a 90-day grace period uh, in addition to the possibility of working without a work visa for three years. So to clarify what it means is that once you graduate, you're entitled to one year of working. The, that first year that you work, you can work voluntarily, uh, which means you don't need to be paid, but you can still work and be in the U.S. Uh, subsequent to that, you can get an extension of another two years where you don't need a work visa. You can continue working on your student visa. But for those two years, you need to actually have a job that pays you. So in my case... Once I graduated, the industry was pretty bad. There were no one was hiring anyone. And I was working on a project with my professor during my master's. And he was like, you know, if you're not going to be working anywhere else, uh, why don't I just hire you through the university as a research associate so that you can keep you can continue working on this project and you know keep delivering the quarterly reports for the company that was funding that project which honestly that was a lifesaver uh, thank god for that 
uh, it you know it took away that stress of uh, not knowing what's going to happen. That ninety day thing is, you know, it's 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 frightening because if you don't get anything within those ninety days, you have to pack your bags and leave the country. So that sorted out. Second was my finances, the fact that they were paying me my basic stuff. So my rent was covered. I still had a place to live. I had food. But during that first one year, I looked everywhere for a job. It was so stressful. And no one wanted to hire because of, of course, the sponsorship issue. Yes. Uh, was it? it, it it's, I was just going to ask if it was... Did you look specifically in uh, petroleum engineering, which is what you graduated? You know, were the jobs that you were looking at mostly based in that field, or did you look outside of that field as well? Well, it was mostly in that field because, um, you know, I, I do love oil and gas. And so I was hellbent and I was hopeful. I was like, you know, it, it's going to work, it, something's going to happen. Um, but it was just a bad time. And also you got to remember, um, it's tricky for you as a recent graduate to shift your field into something that you did not graduate from, because legally you're not supposed to do that. If it's slightly related in some way, then it's fine, but you can't, you know, ditch oil and gas completely and go in as a computer scientist, even if you have the skills, just legally, you are not allowed to. The three years that the US government gives a recent graduate as an international student is so that you can practice what you've learned. It's not so you can make an income. That's not the idea of it. It's it's like, all right, you, you've learned the theoretical part of it, and now we are going to give you a chance to kind of apply your skills in the real world. So it has to be related to what you graduated in. Um, but I did get a job, and <laughs> it was not the most well-paid job, but it was a, a job in the field, um, which was quite an experience. Um, but... Uh, it was interesting. It was fun. And, uh, but the company was very clear that, you know, you can work here for as long as you're on the student visa, but after that, we're not going to sponsor you. Wow. So the idea was still that, all right, I still need to figure it out. So, I mean, it's a long drawn story. Uh, I think you had a much more calm time, so to speak, after you graduated. And we can get into the details of what our personal stories were. Um, I kept bouncing from city to city and job to job, just trying to find uh, some sort of a foothold. But <laughs> and finally ending up in Canada, which is where I'm, you know, uh, I don't know, much more at peace. Uh, but no, those three years, you, it really is a struggle. So for anybody who's coming in with this idea that they're just going to graduate and bag a job, uh, it's not a joke. I don't think it gets as bad as it did for me. It's just, I was, I don't know, maybe I didn't have the right skills, uh, was in the wrong industry at the wrong time, um, uh, because you were quite successful. I mean, you, you stuck it out for five years at the same job at the same location. Yeah, I just want to add that, you know, a lot of it is luck getting the job. You are qualified. Obviously, you're competing with other people. But, uh, you know, getting the job that might sponsor you, there is some element of luck involved. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say that 
you know, you didn't have the right skill set. I think it, it just was, there was a big luck factor involved. And that, for me, uh, I did get fortunate graduating and uh, I was able to uh, bag a job pretty much within the first two months of applying. What I did learn, though, was that there are companies out there that don't recruit you directly, especially for working in uh, mechanical engineering. A lot of companies use third-party uh, consultants, as they call them, or contractors. So you might get hired by the contracting company to work for company A. So you might you are actually working for company B, but they are contracting your services out to company A. So And that has its own challenges because you're not technically a full-time employee with company A. You work for company B, so you don't get the perks and the benefits of company A. And that's basically what happened to me is I got hired on initially as a contractor um, and then made my way into being a full-time employee with this uh, with my employer. And I was working at that company for about five years. I agreed to join them in the first place only because they said that they would uh, sponsor my work visa, my H-1B which is a, a term you're going to start hearing a lot more of uh, when during these conversations. But uh, getting the H-1B in itself, that was the part that you really don't have much control over just because it is a lottery. Uh, but actually bagging that job in the beginning, yeah, I think for me, I realized that Whenever I was applying to bigger companies, the likelihood of them sponsoring me went up because they had the funds to uh, to actually sponsor people, to, to give them that work uh, visa, especially if it was a company that had a lot of international employees. If it yeah. was, in my case, I was working for a French company, so they had a lot of people from France who were working in the company in the U.S. So they had... They, obviously had a team that could manage visas and green cards and, you know, just make sure that they are able to stay in the country. So that part was pretty much taken care of once I started working there. And uh, it was a straightforward path. Once I got into the company, I knew that you know, there are these, the H-1B visa was going to happen and, you know, they were going to apply for me, but whether I got it or not was not really in my control. And we'll have separate episodes where we can talk about the H-1B and go into depth about uh, what exactly the visa is and how it works in terms of applying for it. But uh, I would say, yes, getting the, the job was not as much of a challenge in the beginning, with the caveat that I did get employed by a contracting company. And that was my foot in the door, you know, to working for this employer. Yeah. And, uh, once you do get that experience, though, it's it's value. Once you've worked for a few years and you decide you, definitely. you want to change jobs and you want to apply for the next job. I've since left that first employer. I'm working for another company out in California now. And I know that my experience at the first company helped me immensely in terms of landing this job. Uh, so, yeah, it's not always a straight ride because I have friends... I have uh, classmates who graduated with me who I thought were way smarter than I was, but they struggled to find jobs. And that's why I bring up the factor of luck also playing a part. You know, you could be the most qualified person, but sometimes you just need the stars to line up for you to get that job. 
Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, you got to put yourself out there. You got to make all the effort that you possibly can. But then Lady Luck is always um, a reality. I mean, you can't ignore the fact that luck is involved. Um, So there are, so just to clarify, when you're looking for a job and you're trying, you're basically, you know, most people, once they graduate, whether you like it or not, you're kind of moving from being a potential non-immigrant to an immigrant. Because when you're issued the F1 student visa, you're it's issued in the confidence that you're a non-immigrant. And once you graduate, of course, you want to stay on. Most people do want to stay on. They want to work for however long that be. So the way it works is you graduate, uh, if you're graduating in a STEM field, then you get uh, one plus two years on your OPT, which is called the Optional Practical Training. So during those three years, you get three chances uh, to put your name into the H-1B lottery, the H-1B being the work visa lottery. And once you get your H-1B, uh, I think it's valid for every two years. Is that what it is, Prana? It's three years. So three first, years, yeah. Yeah, the first time you get it, you you're given three years on the first H one B, and you can extend it by another three years. So it's usually three plus three, six years total. Six years that you can do. And during H-1B. and during those six years is when most people uh, start off their process of pushing their company towards uh, a green card. Yes. Uh, and once you have your application in for the green card during those six years, they essentially will extend their H-1B indefinitely. indefinitely. Right, till you get your green card. So you're going to be on the H-1B. And uh, I'd say, so moving away from the technicalities a bit uh, of, you know, the visas and the, the green cards, in terms of tactics for getting a job, uh, one thing mm-hmm. that I have to emphasize here is the importance of networking. And I learned that uh, I was very fortunate that our school actually had a a mentorship program. And I encourage anyone who's coming to come study in the States or in Canada to find out if your career office or if your school's career office actually has something like that. Because what it essentially did was it connected me with someone who was working in the field, an, an alumni who was working out in the field in a sector that I was interested in. So I was really interested in renewable energy and they connected me with uh, someone who was the vice president of one of the major utility players who just happened to be an alumni of uh, our university. And did that person help me get the job that I wanted? It didn't really end up that way. I, I happened to find the job by myself, but the conversations that I had with him and also the contacts that he uh, introduced me to. So he actually helped me get a bunch of interviews that I would not have otherwise been able to get, I imagine, because he put my resume in front of people that I didn't know in the field that I wanted to work in. And it was, I'm still in touch with this person. They're, they've always been, you know, this uh, resource I can look to, to ask the questions that, that, no one really teaches you the answers to, you know, how to, how should I be editing my resume? What do they actually look for in a resume? Am I actually qualified for this job? And even, he would even go to the extent of actually doing mock interviews with me. Wow. 
Yeah, so that's you, amazing. If you can find someone like that, uh, it's it's definitely helpful because it helps you see uh, that there is hope at the end of the day. Because they'll tell you that you know what I was exactly where you are right now. I didn't really know where how I was going to get to point B, but I knew that uh, you know I'm being at point A. There are definitely steps you should be taking, and they can help clarify what those steps are. Um, that was definitely really helpful for me in terms of applying for the jobs. You know, even just in terms of having the encouragement that okay, I'm I'm applying online every day, and I'm not really hearing back from these companies. That was one avenue that I could pursue, you know, to look for the jobs. What else can I do? You know, I have 90 days after I've graduated. I need to utilize all my options. And this ended up being one of those options as well. Uh, you know, just being able to talk to this person, they were able to set set up a few interviews for me to attend. Uh, did you have any, any specific uh, uh, people that I you would... spoke to or, you know, any tactics you used in terms of job applications? So it's funny. I mean, um, so my first year, of course, I worked, I was hired by my university, by my professor to continue working on the project. But the job that I got subsequently after was through a, a contact of a friend. So it's not networking in the very cliche aspect or where you know it's a more official way of interacting with people but it was just a friend uh, you know she had been in the same program as me and she had um, before she had joined the master's program she had worked with this particular company mm -hmm. for a few years and she's like you know um, I don't have any intentions of going back to the company but they might be looking uh, if you're willing to move and uh, <laughs> take a pay cut and work hard uh, they might be interested in just taking over people because they need people and i got in touch um and i think uh, within the first week they're like yeah sure come on over and i left everything in louisiana and just uh hopped on a plane and uh, i remember i landed uh, in upstate new york <laughs> at your place of all places yeah so far yeah. from where you were and then i remember i didn't I didn't know how to drive a car at that point, but I rented a car in uh, Rochester and I drove down all the way to Pennsylvania to join that company. That was uh, quite a year. Holy shit. <laughs> that was a lot. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't networking in the more, um, I don't know, the orthodox idea that people have where you're, trying to get in touch with the alumni and stuff but it was this is networking as well where you know you've made friends over the years and people uh know you uh, they know that uh they can rely on you you're a credible human being you're willing to work hard and they have no problems recommending you yeah networking is networking it doesn't matter where that contact is or you know if it's someone who's already in the field someone who's a classmate yeah. Uh, you know, it, it could be a teacher. A lot of the times people actually tur did turn to professors to yeah. introduce, make those introductions because they do have contacts, you know, with in the industry, that, in the yeah. industry, which is where you're looking to work. And that was definitely a big uh, help in terms of understanding the landscape because the job market, 
I, I don't know what it's like back in back in India where we studied and graduated. I I'd like to think it's similar, but and networking would help. But I know that networking pl- plays a huge part in terms of getting a job here, and I learned that on the job because I would see our company post jobs online, and whenever friends would ask me, you know. I'm looking to apply for this job that I saw at your company. I would have to tell them that you know what we just put that job on, but there's already the job's basically taken because someone yeah, they already was, have somebody in mind. Yeah, they already had someone in mind for that job, and you can hate on that person because they got the job, you know, because they knew someone, or you can try and be the person who who tries to know people and get the job, you know. It is what it is. You have to play the game of you know networking and trying to you know talk your way into those jobs, or at least ha- talk your way to get your foot in the door. Yeah, it, it, I know that. I think back home, it's really looked down upon. Um, what we call in Hindi safarish, it's like basically you know you're internally recommending it. Um, somebody you know, uh, because a lot of times uh, back home, especially when it's an entry level, uh, the whole recruiting process is so different. Mm-hmm. It's it's like they come to the college, a they come to a college, a day is designated to one company, and they give the criteria. They don't want anybody below a certain uh, grade point average. You sit for a test, and then people who pass the test go on to the next round. And by the end of the night, you know if you have a job or not. If not, then you start all over again with another company next morning. That's definitely not how it works here. Over here, it's all about communication and who you know. And sometimes the relations that come out is like a friend of a friend of a friend. It's 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 ridiculous, but that's that's literally how you get a job here. It's by knowing people. Uh, there are. I'm not saying that just applying online uh, to all of these uh, job sites like Indeed or Monster.com doesn't work, but it it's it's a tough tough playing field especially if you're international. Because the other thing that I do want to emphasize on is most times uh, they will, when you go on and fill out an application for a job online, you fill out the entire application, you put in your resume, you write your cover letter, and the last page, there's going to be a question where they ask, do you need sponsorship or not? And of course, if you're international, you're going to say, yes, I do. The moment you click yes, you're automatically disqualified. They're not going to tell you that, but you can be rest assured that for most companies, your resume is going to go into the junk pile. That's that's definitely true for, especially true for uh, new graduates or first time, Yeah, you know, uh, people are- Entry-level positions, yeah. Entry-level positions, that's right. Yeah. And um, the- Uh, and there's no control in that you know that's the part that you don't have control over but all you can really do is improve your chances by having your resume skip that process and somehow get it in front of the hiring manager you know through networking through a contact get it in front of a human being it's it's you know we live in an age where getting a human response from any of your applications is almost becoming impossible 
you might apply to probably 400 uh, companies, but you'll probably hear back from five people who are actual human beings. And it's because more often than not, it's going through the ATR process for all of these um uh, you know, companies that they've set up with Indeed or whatever. And it's basically these computers that are sifting through hundreds and hundreds of resumes. And <laughs> uh, you are trying to get through that. It, it, it's, it's, it's insane. I mean, getting a job today is really, really hard. And, and it's not worth playing that game because you can try and beat the machine. I remember when I was applying, I was basically putting in keywords that I thought they needed to see in my resume. And I did too. That's what you have to do. You have to, you know, yeah. put in the words. If, if you're a designer, you have to put in softwares that you use and hope that that's what they're looking for. And that the filters that they've set up for their uh, online tools will, you know, let you through. Yeah. And that's just hoping against hope versus the process of either cold emailing or using your contacts where Sure, you might not hear back from certain people. Maybe they they put your resume in front of the person and they think you're not a bad fit, but at least your resume made it somewhere. You know that you got some traction in that method. Uh, and that's all we're trying to emphasize is, yes, you might still end up getting a job through one of these online applications, and that's amazing. That's what happened to me. I did get lucky there. Yeah. But um, I know that I gave a lot more interviews uh, my success ratio of getting an interview was pretty high when uh, someone had recommended me. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, it's just, you know, the whole idea is like when you apply online and that one line comes up as do you need sponsorship? I feel like I got killed in every application at that point. It, it was just, it was so hopeless. But um, I think that's a good segue into the other point is... Uh, the whole idea of whether you're desirable or not based on whether you're international uh, depends also on what part of the country you're at. I think um, the discussion is drastically for different for students who are graduate, graduating in California as compared to students who are graduating in Texas. How do you um, think that is, though? In what way? I feel like in Texas... Um, it's not like the population of international students is low. Uh, it's it's certainly lower compared to California, but uh, companies there, if they can, they ra they would rather hire an American. They just don't want to go through the whole hassle uh, and the legalities of having to sponsor an international student because uh, at some point they will have to provide you with lawyers. Whereas in California, it's it's a no-brainer. They've been doing it for years, for decades, and they have the resources. They're very well aware. And most likely the person who's going through uh, all of these applications, as well as the people who are running those companies, are immigrants themselves. There is uh, the landscape is just so different. You know, uh, California is a uh, startup haven where most people are uh, immigrants themselves, like first generation immigrants. True. Whereas Texas is old school, uh, you know, families from back in the day who were running the businesses. So it's just it's it's just a very 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 different landscape. And oil and gas is one of those very conservative industries. So for an international to kind of get in, uh, 
it's definitely harder. Whereas tech is more, it's not an old school business. It's, it's, it's hip, it's new. Uh, it's almost a baby, so to speak. I mean, tech, the whole industry, so to speak, what we see today is barely a decade old. Yeah. Have the companies that exist in the Bay Area were not there probably seven years ago. That's true. And and, <laughs> and they've been set up by graduates. Right. Our age. Right. You hit the nail on the head with that one because that is the way I view it here as well. Having moved from New York State and not New York City, mind you. I'm sure New York City is still uh, with all the financial institutions, they Absolutely, have yeah. they have the means to sponsor, and they have way more uh, diversity in terms of their hiring. But moving out to California, that's the first thing I noticed was even during my interview, I remember just dreading the idea of bringing up sponsorship that I am going to need um, an H one B sponsorship during a Trump presidency. So you can imagine politically, the landscape <laughs> yeah. was not was not great uh, for immigration of any kind. But it was a no-brainer. The the manager that I spoke to, he was more curious about the process. He just said, okay, I need to talk to my HR, but I don't see that being a problem. And we'll wait. We, you know, we'll do what we have to do to get you. And where the, the conversation the first time around was in New York in a smaller uh, town where I worked was... Uh, you know, we don't know. We'll see. You know, we'll talk about it when the time comes. We, they did it's a lot of you know, hesitation, right? Because they don't. Uh, I don't know if it's the landscape there in terms of just not having the means, or if it's you know, it's not a it's not a done deal in a lot of uh, smaller towns or or um, less diverse places. California is very diverse. As a you know, in terms of all diversities, not just you know racially or internationally, you have people from all over the place. It is a very diverse place. So when you're hiring, usually they have the the awareness that okay, this person's coming from another country. They're going to need a visa sponsorship. No big deal. We've got the stuff set up. And especially with bigger companies, because that's a big part of the culture that they promote over here uh, with most companies. So that's a good point. And some things you can control. So when you are graduating from a school in New York and you're applying to uh, a job in California, definitely go for it, apply. But you should know that some companies do filter out applicants from uh, geographically further off places. So if you're applying and the place that you're applying from is really far away, they they do sometimes factor in relocation. Oh. And... Uh, especially smaller companies might not be able to afford the relocation you might need to move across country or move to a different part of the country. Yeah. And also they're probably not as interested. I mean, especially if it's an entry-level position, uh, they rather just hire people who are more local, so to speak. But, you know, so for me, when I graduated, of course, it was abnormal situations. And a lot of people I knew um, did not take the route of um, looking for a job. Um, they decided that it'd be better if they pursued a PhD mm. because uh, the whole idea behind being sponsored is, for anybody who doesn't know, being sponsored essentially means that, the U that a company is telling the U.S. government 
that an American cannot do this job. And so I need an international person to do it for me. That's the whole idea of sponsorship. It's like you couldn't find somebody to do this job at this location for this amount of money from within the country. Mm-hmm. And so you have no choice left. And so you are asking the government to let this person stay and work here legally for the company to do that job. Um, so what logically what a lot of people think is that if they're not getting sponsored for a job after they graduated the master's, then perhaps if they, you know, stuck on for another three years, four years and did a PhD, then it'd be much easier to get sponsored. So a lot of international students come in already pre-said that they'll try to get a job once they're done with the master's, but more often than not, more likely they're going to just directly go into a PhD. Uh, was that ever an option in your head? I mean, for me it was, but I had a friend who convinced me that that's a bad idea. Smart friend, because... I know. <laughs> I I didn't really think about it uh, coming in. I did see... So one of my roommates actually in grad school was a PhD student and he liked what he was doing. So he was okay with it. But I just saw the, the effort and the work that was going into this, this degree, the years, right. Just the time. And, uh, and he would be in the lab pretty much the whole day. It's different when you have classes that you need to go to and tests you need to prepare for like with the master's degree. But for the PhD, a lot of it is there's no, it's not like there's a correct answer at the end of the tunnel. You know, you're working on your research and you're hoping that it yields results that are favorable and and it takes the time that it takes. It's not that if you work hard for two years, you'll definitely have a result. You could have absolutely nothing by the end of it as well. So uh, when I saw that, it didn't gel right with me. I didn't, it just didn't sit right with me. And um I I did take a little extra time to graduate because I stayed on for an extra semester to work on a project, but I knew that I, the PhD was not on the cards only because I just saw I, I couldn't put in another two or three years of grad school. I, I wanted to get out. I wanted to earn. I wanted to um, apply my skills that I'd learned so far. And uh, so I, I never really considered it. But uh, I know you, you said that you considered it initially. So what exactly did your friend tell you to uh, deter you? This is horrible and it's probably very controversial. But, you know, he was a guy, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, quite a go-getter. He's like, if you want to do a PhD because you enjoy it, then that's fine. Because more, more most likely people who do pursue a PhD do want to end up becoming a professor. That's usually the, um, they want to be a teacher in the long run. So if that's what your end game is and you're doing it for the love of uh, academia, go for it. But if you're doing it because you couldn't get a job and so you're just uh, compromising, then that's just a bad attitude. He's like, you have to give your everything. And, um, the first year I didn't get a job, so I was working. My thank God, my come my professor hired me to the university, um, and you know months were passing by, and there was still no job in sight. And I knew that I could only do this for so many months more because once the 
one year mark is up, you have to get a proper job if you want to con- extend your um, work permit on a student visa for another two years. So I was like, okay, this is not happening. So I did actually apply for uh, PhD programs in two universities. Yeah. And um, I didn't want to do it, but I was like, you got to do what you got to do. And uh, I got rejected from both. Was. <laughs> and, and my friends were like, oh no, what's going to happen, Gupta? This is, this is really bad. Like, what, what's going to happen? You know, when I got the rejections, I actually smiled. Because I so didn't want to do a PhD. I was like, all right, thank God I didn't have to make this call myself. The decision was made for me. And uh, I think uh, a month after that rejection, uh, uh, like I said, a friend of a friend said, hey, there's this company that's hiring. Would you want to work? And things just worked out. And I ended up working. It was a very tough year that I worked the next one year, but but I still worked. And I'm so glad I didn't go down the PhD route because there's something that I want to clarify. A lot of people think that it's much easier to get sponsored if you have a PhD than if you have a master's. Because once you do a PhD, you're a specialist, right? So companies should have no problems. The US government should have no problems saying, you know what, stay here, we would love to have a specialist. The problem is, is that you're just narrowing your field. I mean, you'll find that once you graduate with a master's, there'll be companies who will tell you that you're overqualified. You add a PhD to that, Best of luck. Because the chances that you're going to find a company that needs somebody who's specialized in the exact thing that you graduated your PhD in is like the probabilities of that are very slim. You're making your field even narrower. That's So you're putting yourself in a box. I, I can just think back to the time when I was applying for jobs uh, right after I graduated. And, you know, day one after graduating, I saw maybe 30 listings that I had never applied to. So I applied to all of them on the same day. You know, once you start applying, you get in the flow. You have nothing else to do. You apply and that's all you sit and do is apply for jobs. Day two, I saw maybe, you know, two more listings on top of the 30 that I had applied to, you know? Yeah. I can only imagine, and that was, you know, somewhat in line with my qualifications, the type of work I would want to do, the type of work I was qualified to do. I can only imagine if you've got a PhD and you're on those job sites looking for a job after your PhD, you might find stuff initially the first day that you you graduate, you look and you'll see a bunch of opportunities. But eventually you realize you applied, like it won't take that long for you to have applied to all the opportunities that are out there and hope that one of them works out because there are not that many that get uh, that come out every day for PhD candidates and uh, that specifically want someone with a PhD and specifically want someone with a PhD with, you know, the the specialization that you might have chosen, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a tough uh, tough search. Yeah, and I know that I I said the same thing uh, when I was looking for a job when people would say, "Oh, you're overqualified." So, 
you know, somebody who's listening to this might be like, well, I don't care. Like, even if I have a PhD, I'm willing to do an entry-level job. Legally, if you're an international student, a company cannot hire a PhD, have him sponsored by the US government, and then make you work on an entry-level job. That's illegal. If a company is hiring you uh, as a PhD, then the salary and the job has to be in, uh, you know, has to correspond to your level as a PhD graduate. Right. Uh, they, even if they wanted to give you an entry-level job, they can't. I mean, if they could, the companies would be having a blast. They would just hire all of these PhD master's students and be like, you know what, we'll pay you just 40000 60000 and you do an entry-level job. I mean, they'd be more than happy to hire someone overqualified. The reason they can't is because it's illegal. Uh, if you have a PhD, then you're then the uh, U.S. government states that you that the company has to pay you accordingly. And so even if the company wants, and if even if you're willing to take an entry-level job, you are not going to get it. Right. And it's important to emphasize the fact that that mainly applies while you, because you are going to international. Seek, right. You're going to seek sponsorship at some point. Yeah. Because if this was someone who was from here and didn't need the sponsorship, sure, you can have a PhD and go work at Starbucks and they wouldn't really believe Nobody cares. No one's going to yeah. care. Who's going to check? But the U.S. government, USCIS, does follow up during the whole uh, H-1B process where they're going to look at your documents. They're going to see your qualifications. First off, even if you are a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering and you're working in computer science for a That's job. That's a big red flag. Right. The job might have said Ph.D. required, but do you have a Ph.D. in computer science? No. Then, yeah, that's that's not going to work out. The U.S. government doesn't see it like that, even if you technically can do the job. And uh, yeah, you'll have to explain as to why and how it relates to uh, what you graduated, and like they'll ask for an explanation, right? And so there are lawyers involved. It's trickier. It's and it's uh, yeah. it's one of those things that there's no there's no one answer that's going to you know satisfy the U.S. government. It might you might just get away with it, and that'd be amazing. But do you really want to risk it and hope that it works out? Probably not. Yeah, and I know a lot of people are going to be like, well, how is that fair that an American with a PhD can go and work at uh, an entry-level job, but I'm an international and I, I'm not allowed to do so? And the reason is that because from the uh, from U.S.'s point of view, it makes complete sense because uh, you can't take away a citizen's job, right? I mean, the whole idea of you getting a job is because somebody who's a citizen can do it. That's why you're being hired. So it's 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 not right if you have a PhD, but you're being hired for an entry level job that is more than capable of being done by, uh, you know, a recent American graduate. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, uh, there it's complicated. It's not the most straightforward. Uh, a lot of people do think that um, maybe their life would become easier. Uh, for now, and it probably does in the short term, where when you you know go from a master's to a PhD, because you don't have to think for the next three years, four years about where your money is going to come from and what do you have to. You just focus on your academics. Um, but all you're doing in that case is just pushing that struggle. Right. You're not averting it. You're not making it easier for you. You still have to go through that struggle uh, now or four years later, uh, and 
perhaps in some cases, you might be making it even tougher for yourself. So be very careful about what you're doing. You know, if you have a very clear objective that, all right, if I do a PhD in this and then this company might hire me, which is probably a bad idea to go about that because companies can change their mind and give you no explanation. (laughs) But um, be very careful and be very clear about why you are going into the PhD line. Yeah, you're delaying the inevitable by signing up for a PhD unless your motivations are... Um, in line with doing a PhD, if you are doing a PhD because you're genuinely interested in the research, uh, good for you. That's amazing. I'm sure you can try and find a job around that field. Uh, maybe you guys should listen to our episode on picking a school because we do go into basing the location of your school on you know, the companies that you'd like to work for as well. Geographically, it makes way more sense to be around those companies, to be especially if you're doing a PhD and you're hopeful of you know, landing a job uh, in a research-related position for a company. But uh, that's a good point. The PhD path is something that is explored. And you, sh- you want to be on it for the right reasons. You don't want to be stuck with something and dreading the day you graduate with a PhD because you don't know what next. Because then it's going to be, I'm going to end up you know, having to stick in academics and that's a whole other um, Pandora's box of opportunities. But at the same time, yeah, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty involved with that life as well. And the last thing that I do want to touch upon with the whole PhD thing is that a lot of international kids, um, you know, they, they do their master's, they don't get a job, they, they decide to do a PhD. And then once they finish the PhD, they still don't get a job. And then they finally decide to become a professor. It happens a lot. There are professors who have always intended to be a professor. And so they've followed the path of master's to PhD. But it does happen. There's a reason why over 80% of uh, the Uh, professors in universities are international. The number one thing is if you want to become a professor, you have to have a PhD. Now, if you are an American who has a PhD, you're more likely to go and work in the industry because the salaries over there are probably the same, if not more. So the only people who sometimes do end up not doing that and sticking behind and becoming a professor are international students who didn't really have that option. And they're like, you know what? I actually do enjoy my research. Uh, I in- And I probably enjoy teaching this as well. So let me go down the path of becoming a professor. And for a lot of people, it's also very tempting because when you're trying to be a professor, um, A, it's not necessary that you need to have any industrial experience. So you can go directly from PhD to becoming a professor. It's not recommended, but a lot of people do it. Second, the salaries start at about 100000 So you're guaranteed a six-figure salary. And the third and the most important is that unlike in the industry where you are only allowed to apply for your sponsorship only once a year, Uh, When you're in academics, uh, the college can apply for your sponsorship at any time in the year. So your chances of being sponsored are 
definitely much higher. You know, you 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 have a six-figure salary. You're going to get sponsored. Uh, a lot of people go down that route. So that's another alternative to having a job in the U.S. A lot of international students try and become a professor. Huh. Um, I wouldn't recommend that. Like, you know, when you're becoming a professor, um, you're basically educating the next generation. Um, I think there's a lot of liability. And so I would hope that people who go do go down that path enjoy teaching and are going down for the right reasons. But you can't deny the reality of things where a lot of people do end up becoming professors because they really didn't have any other choice. Yeah. It's just a fact. That's true of so many different choices people make. It's it's almost like they cornered themselves into by delaying the inevitable, kind of like with the PhD yeah. path. You know, you don't choose and then the choices are made for you. So you didn't choose to go get a job, so you did a PhD. Cool. And then the next thing you know, you're not able to find a job for whatever reason. Maybe you do, but if you don't, then you're on the you're on the path to becoming a professor and then you know 10 years down the line you look at yourself and wonder why why am i teaching when i have absolutely no interest in this it's because you didn't make the choices when you could or you took the choices you or you accept the fact that these are the choices you made and you yeah. reap the benefits of sponsorship of a decent salary as a professor and those are not terrible things to live with you know when everyone else is out there competing for jobs and sponsorship and you're pretty much handed that stuff, that's, um, it comes at a price and the price is usually that it takes a little longer on the, um, at least with, uh, with becoming a professor. And, uh, yeah, I don't know anyone personally who's done it, but I've seen, I, I know in our department, there were a lot of people who were international, students at one point and then stuck around and became professors. Yeah. yeah um, I don't know personally anybody who graduated with me to become a professor. I know somebody who attempted to do it, who thought, all right, the, you know, the work side of things is not happening. So I'm just going to become a professor. And last I heard, he failed even at that. Wow. <laughs> so, so now I don't know what he's doing, but I'm just saying that, you know, don't bank on these things. Um, it's, it's a struggle, no matter what point, no matter what country, international or not international, US, Canada, get India, wherever you are, getting a job in today's market is super competitive. It's extremely hard. You really have to be resi uh, resilient. You... Uh, need to adapt to the country that you're in in its ways. So if you're in North America, start working on your communication skills, start networking with people. You know, the first year, a lot of people, you know, once they land, they're like, oh, you know, getting a job is far, far away. It's not. Mm -hmm. Start working on getting a job from the day you land. And by working for it is, you know, don't stick in your group or just your community. Interact with the people around you. Interact with the people who are from that country. It's very easy to stay in your comfort zone, just be surrounded by your fellow Indian friends or Australian or whatever. No, you, you really have to venture out of your comfort zone, mix with the locals, uh, kind of prove yourself that, you know, you're capable of working in a collaborative environment that you're a nice guy, you you have some level of credibility and uh, start building on that because that 
really takes you a long way. In my case, I mean, the only reason I did have a job <laughs> was because of my friend who had faith in me. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, I'll recommend you to this. And it so happened they were looking for that. If that had not happened, if I just, you know, st- stuck my head in a book for the two, three years that I was doing my master's, <laughs> best of luck to me. It is so true what you just said about it being a struggle. It is competitive out there, whatever you choose to pursue. And um, yeah. I think this conversation highlighted in many ways that the struggle works out and uh, yeah. it works out, especially if it's something that you want to struggle for. So if you're struggling to do a PhD that you don't want at the end of the day, it's much harder as a struggle. It's much more challenging to face each day and to, you know, to look forward to the next day and the next challenge because you don't, you don't even want to be there in the first place. But if it is a job that you want to land and you want to stay in this country, you know, work on a work visa, yes, you're constantly jumping through hoops and you, you know what the path is for moving forward, but it's a struggle that you'll take on because you want to take that struggle on because you know what or what you're technically working towards. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, I think from this conversation, uh, a lot of um, our listeners might have a lot of questions regarding the different visas because, you know, it gets really technical super fast in terms of your immigration status and uh, what kind of visa you're on, an immigrant, non-immigrant, student, H-1B, green card, it's a lot. So we'll probably be discussing and um, dealing with each of those um, separate visas separately in one of our nuggets or perhaps on an episode. Uh, in the meantime, if anybody has any questions, please feel free to write in to us and post your questions on Twitter at jhr podcast that's for a just hit record podcast we'll you know we'll be more than happy to answer them to the best of our abilities other than that this brings us to the end of today's episode uh, we look forward to joining you guys again next week on another episode of just hit record take care